0: So, in July of 1961, the f- head coach of the Green Bay Packers, Vince Lombardi, um, was going into uh, training camp, and uh, they just finished the previous season, and they had lost in what was then called the NFL championship game to the Philadelphia Eagles by blowing a fourth quarter lead. And so, Lombardi comes into the locker room, these, these guys for the next season, and they're thinking, hey, we're going to kind of pick up where we left off, and, and we were one of the best teams, so let's just keep pushing on, and we're, it's going to be great. And then he, the coach, Lombardi, famously walks into the locker room the first day, doesn't say anything, just looks at all the players and holds up a football, and famously says, gentlemen, this is a football. Now, I'm sure some of those guys were like, yeah, duh, coach. Are you patronizing us? Are you talking down to us here? But what he was saying was, we have to get back to what this is all about, because I think we've forgotten. And so he had them open up all their playbooks and turn back to the first Page and start to relearn the fundamentals of like tackling and blocking and passing and everything to get back to like these detail-oriented parts of of the game. This hyper focus on the fundamentals, and then because of that, they would go on that season to win the title 37 to zero, and then Lombardi's teams would win five titles in the next seven years. Pretty incredible. He never lost a playoff game ever again in his career. The head coach of UCLA Bruins, John Wooten, famously, I didn't know this, 1963 to 1974, they won 10 national titles in 11 years. Crazy, they only lost 14 games in 11 years. Um, Wooten famously would go in to start the season and would not teach them plays or set a pick or shoot a jump shot, he would hold up socks and teach them how to put their socks on. He would say, make sure there's no wrinkles on how you put on the sock because they're wearing the old school Converse's. Remember those made of canvas? No arch support in those things. And, you know, he taught them how to tie their shoes the right way because he's saying, if we cut down on blisters, a lot more of you will be healthy and you'll be better throughout the season. Just this minutia, this fundamental aspect of the game that he focused on, then he would go on to great success, of course, and he famously also would hold a basketball, and he would say, guys, what's the point of this game? And some of them would say, well, play defense, be a good teammate, uh, whatever, and he would say, the point is to put this ball in that hoop. Simple. But whoever scores the ball has 10 hands. I like that. Five. There's five players. If you don't know, there's five players on each side. I'll clear that up. So they don't actually have 10 hands. Okay. Now, regardless of our age, we all have experiences with going back to the basics, going back to school. I remember going back to school as a kid to get a new trapper keeper. There's still a thing. I don't know. They were cool. Get a new outfit, new haircut, looking fly, right? Get ready to go back to school, back to the basics. Now, when we talk about this, many things in life are always changing, but what we're going to be looking at in August is the things that are changed less, the things that are, are constant. And that's actually reassuring in our world and encouraging to know that there are things that are change less. That we, how do we become a people that are deeply rooted in the Word of God and yet flexible above ground, deeply rooted in truth and yet flexible in grace, being full of both to the measure of both, just like Jesus is? How do we discern the will of God for our lives, our families, for our church? Well, by going back to the start, by going back to the basics. This is a football. This is My Bible's all the way back here. This is the Bible. Not to patronize, but just to get back to the core essence of what us is all about. How do we understand the Bible? How do we interpret the Bible? How do we you know, do we do it by reason alone? Is it just about what it means to me? Is it just my experiences? We're going to look at that. I remember my first uh, theology class at Gordon-Conwell Seminary, or I went to seminary. My theology professor said, "Look, you're all walking into here with a lens that you're going to be looking through through to look at the Bible, based on where you grew up, where you went to school, uh, your your job." you know, your family life, all of that, you all have something you're you're coming in here with that you're going to be viewing the scripture through. And he said, take your lens and take it off. And let the text speak first. Before you even begin to interpret, have your own opinion, let the text speak. Because what you look at determines what you become. Whatever you look through determines what you see. And the lens you do or do not use determines what you see. Have you ever noticed in the Bible that the angels, Jesus, God, all throughout the scriptures, they're, they're always saying, look, right? They're always like, behold, look, look, look. And for one, probably because like the shepherds, for example, in the birth story of Jesus, they're probably terrified. They're probably like, you know, wetting themselves with fear. Of these huge creatures are in front of them. The angels like, look. But I think they're always saying, look, behold because they're trying to draw our attention upward. They're trying to capture our imaginations. To to see that we can ask the Holy Spirit to help the person of Jesus be revealed to us. That when you see the lamb at the center of the throne in heaven, you see everything else more clearly. Everything else makes sense. This is why Christianity is so true. It's because it makes sense of our lives. It makes sense of the human condition. It provides it provides context to why we're here, where we're going, and and what's the point of life itself. When we see clearly, through scripture, you see the lamb at the center of the throne, you see everything else clearly. For scripture is the lens through which we can see everything else. See, the light of scripture can shine down on our experiences, on our reason, on our traditions and inform those things, but not the other way around. The scripture is primary. So we're going to look at those four words, actually, of the next four weeks. Scripture, traditions, reason, and experience. And we're going to be going back to the basics with these four words. So the first... Okay, there's a lot I could say about scripture in a very short amount of time, so I had to distill it down to really three big ideas. Uh, The first is that scripture is a special revelation. All right? Well, there's three of them. Scripture offers special revelation. Scripture is authoritative. And it is God-breathed. And we'll look at all three of this Again, when I don't get to, there's a lot, you can pick up one of these books. I highly recommend this book. It's one of my favorites ever. So the first, Scripture offers special revelation. What does that mean? When I lived in Asheville, um, this was very common in Asheville, which was, uh, I don't need church. I don't need the Bible uh, the, the, the trees are my cathedral, right? Nature is my cathedral. When I go to the beach or whatever, or I look in the mountains, and at I, I, one hand, I'm like, yeah, absolutely. I totally agree with that. I love nature. I love hiking. I like granola bars and, and wearing chacos and, and all of that, <laughs> and just be ready for a spontaneous hike at any moment. But I see God in those things, But those things aren't God, right? This person was correct that there is enough in nature to reveal in a general sense that there is a creator. And most individuals would acknowledge that. That you can't deny the design and the beauty and the intricacy of nature. And the Bible says because of that general revelation, all people are without excuse. We all know there's a creator, and therefore, we fall below the moral standard that he has set, and that we're sinners. So because we know that, we're really without excuse, no matter who we are, where we come from. Romans chapter 1, for what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. Ever since the creation of the world, God's eternal power and divine nature, invisible though they are, have been understood and seen through the things he has made. So they are without excuse. So, like, if you and I were walking... I just went to the Outer Banks. If you and I were walking on the Outer Banks, and- which, by the way, is about to go away. <laughs> it is really eroding. Um, uh, if you and I were walking down the beach and we picked up, like, a stopwatch or a wristwatch. It was on the sand. And you picked it up. You would look at it and think, clearly, someone made this. The ocean didn't create it and spit it out at my feet. Somebody made this watch. The created thing points to the creator, that nature is a general revelation, but nature can't really tell you about Jesus, it can't really tell you about sin or salvation, so general revelation, it's, an, it's not enough to save, but it can point to the reality of God, so I have a really deep thought to share with you, do you remember deep thoughts on Saturday Night Live, the jack Handy. And if you're old enough to remember that reference, sorry, if you're under the age of 40, I apologize, Deep thought alert. You don't know something specific unless somebody tells you or you read it. I know it doesn't sound that that big of a deal, but a word has to be spoken to you or you read it to hear something specific, to get detail. We need special or specific revelation, and that's what this provides special revelation. The Bible is 66 books, dozens of authors. Begins and ends with a wedding. Think about it. It took hundreds of years to come together. It has every known type of literature. History, tragedy, comedy, romance, poetry, prophecy. could go on. All of these different cultural contexts that it covers. And it all points to one person who fulfilled hundreds of messianic prophecies. Jesus Christ. That is special revelation. And that is what scripture provides for all people. Secondly, scripture is authoritative. Now, before I even get into what that even even means, I want to give a disclaimer that the Bible should never be a weapon to wield. The Bible is not a rule book to get right or to get wrong. That it's not a cause for constant shame. The Bible is authoritative because it is the word of God, but it is beautiful because it's authoritative. It is freeing because it speaks with certainty. Like Psalm 119, there's a bunch of psalms like this. I find my delight in your commandments because I love them. I revere your commandments which I love and I will meditate on your statutes. We should delight in the authority of God's word, not use it as a bludgeon to win arguments because no one is convinced that way anyway. You can't convince anyone of anything by arguing with them. Ultimately, we have to decide for ourselves. I remember when I was ordained um, before, well, before you kneel and they pray over you, they ask you a bunch of questions, and everyone has the same answer. I am so persuaded by God's grace. And here's one of the things they ask all clergy people. Are you persuaded that the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments contain all things necessary for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, and are the unique and authoritative standard for the church's faith and life. It's a big question. And I answered, I'm so persuaded by God's grace. And I didn't cross my fingers when I said it. I didn't. The question of authority, it is really important right now. Because our I it's clear, our culture is in a philosophical and moral and I would say spiritual crisis. We are in crisis mode. Everyone, we're in a crisis because everyone marches to the beat of someone or something. Everyone answers to somebody. Everyone has an authority from which they take their orders, if you will. You might not think about it, but you do. We all answer, whether it's yourself, self-determination, subjective morality, it's your money, it's your culture, it's your politics, whatever. We all try to obey someone or something. And because we're sinners... We don't really like standards very much. We don't really like standards or authority that comes from somewhere else besides my own idea. We kind of buck that. Jesus said we're like sheep. What do sheep do? They get lost a lot. They make a lot of mistakes. Now for the Christian, Scripture is the primary standard. As the cry of the Reformation said, sola scriptura, Scripture alone. We do not sit in judgment on Scripture. Scripture should ideally sit in a loving judgment on us. That you read the Bible humbly and let it read your life as well. Hebrews four twelve indeed, the Word of God is living and active, and sharper than any two edged sword, piercing until it divides soul from spirit, joints from marrow, it is able to judge the thoughts and intentions. Of the heart. How many times have you been reading the Bible in your life and something popped out to you for the first time and you're like, ooh, that, ooh you got me there? Said, Come on. It, it kind of stepped on your toes a little bit? That's the Holy Spirit. That's God saying, I, I, I need you to see that. The other day I, I, I was on my phone, I was scrolling, and I saw two, two different things, but they're the same idea. And I realized God was trying to say, I need you to focus on that. That, that it was two, two scripture passages. That, that, the, that the word of God is authoritative. That it, In a sense, it's like guardrails for your life. It's not there to ruin your fun or just to destroy everything. It's really there. There's safety in the covenant with God. Outside of those boundaries, it, it's all bets are off. But if you stay close to the word of God and, and see that if it's living and active and sharper than a sword, it, if it's judging your thoughts and intentions of your heart, that is, it is for your good. It's for all of our good. But there, there's this thing going on in the church right now called deconstructionist theology. It's a very postmodern idea. It's one that is, that is really scared of certainty. It approaches, it approaches this holy book with a great deal of skepticism, with a great deal of bias, I would say. It's a rejection of, of meta narrative. It's, it's this idea that I think I'm a little bit smarter than this book. And that's really everywhere right now. I don't hold to that. I think that scripture should ideally deconstruct me. Because I'm the one in need of grace. I'm the one that doesn't always get it right. Now, this isn't to say we shouldn't question or struggle or wrestle with ideas. Of course we should. Of course we should. But it really should rebuild our lives. You know, the past couple of months here, we've had a lot of people come up and say, you know, the worship here has been great. The teaching, like this church, I've been blessed. And, and I hear that, and I'm so grateful. And I, but I, what I always say or think is, it's the word doing the work, right? It's not me. It's not Keith. It's the word doing the work. Here's some of the best advice I ever got. People don't come to church to hear what the preacher has to say. There's plenty of opinions out there, and we don't need to hear more opinion. People come to church to hear what God has to say, right? Isn't that why you're here? Ultimately, that's why I'm here too, to hear what God has to say, to experience the word of God. This is where the power is, not in my opinion. Are you kidding me? Like Thomas Thomas Jefferson, when he carved up the New Testament parts he didn't agree with? I mean, how much pride and arrogance can the human heart create? Foolishness. It's like the book of Job, when it's like the, the created thing spitting back at the potter and rejecting the potter's hand. It is by grace we receive this book. This is where the life is, in his words. Scripture was authoritative to Jesus. This is really where this idea comes from, that he constantly quotes the Bible, Deuteronomy, Isaiah, uh, the Psalms. I mean, he, he does not hundreds of citations that are recorded, and, and, and he always does it with certainty. He never is like, you know, here's something to think about. Yeah, take it or leave it. Here's some Old Testament passages. No, he always says it with authority. Like when he's tempted in the desert by Satan, he uses scripture to ward off temptation. That's a great reminder for our lives, by the way. He quotes the Bible frequently. John 10, 35, Jesus is having an argument with the Pharisees, or you say dialogue. And he says the word of God can never be annulled. It can never be broken. That, That the word of God is powerful. And active, and life-giving to all who will receive it. Matthew 5, 17, Jesus said, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. He's not come to do away with it. He came to fulfill it perfectly. I have come to fulfill, for truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, he's talking about the end of days on, on the earth, when all these things pass away, until that day, my words will never pass away. My word, not one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Now, when you think about, I'm going to play the other side of this, the, the idea of authority of scripture, some people would say that's a loaded term. It's a loaded term. They, I've, I've been reading this lately, people saying, we, what, is, what, what even is an orthodox church? What, what even is orthodoxy? What even is authority of scripture? And their the reasoning is, because orthodoxy is always changing throughout history, because interpretation has always been fluid and changing, who's to say? Truth, in a sense, is subjective. The perspective here is taking its cues, it's taking its authority from tradition, from their own opinion, ultimately, and not really starting with the scripture. They're basically saying, people have been confused in church history So let's continue being confused. Let's, like, other people failed at that, so let's fail at this. That's an argument from a negative. This is the destination that ultimately deconstructionist theology leads you. It's a hall of mirrors where everyone gets lost and everyone does what's right in their own eyes. Because who's to say what's right? So it's a fear of certainty that ultimately leads to chaos now don't get me wrong no one perfectly follows the bible that's for sure no doubt about that but that's what makes a standard a standard to spur us on to good deeds to challenge us and motivate us to be more than we thought we could be then lastly scripture is god breathed second timothy three sixteen: all scripture is inspired by god and is useful for teaching for reproof for correction and for training and righteousness So you might be thinking, okay, it's God-breathed, God inspired it, the Holy Spirit inspired all these different individuals throughout the ages, he inspired all these church councils to come together and bring together a codex or a book at one point in in the history of the world. So how how do I interpret scripture? How do I I make sense of this? Again, more than I can cover right here, but I will say a few things. John Wesley was a self-professed bibliophile. Those are his words, not mine. Bibliophile. He said a Methodist should get cut and they bleed Bible. He said he would teach to, you should lean toward a literal interpretation of the text if it allows it. So some of them don't. He also gave some helpful tips. Am I reading the Bible in a way that brings me in contact with the whole of it? Basically, am I reading it in context? Do I read scripture in large enough portions to see isolated passages in their larger context? Again, am I, am I taking the whole Do I use responsible aids to aid in the insights of others? Do I have any means of marking, noting, recording to be engaged with it? I would say this. Many times, there's parts of the Bible that are very confusing. There's other parts that are literal. There's other parts that are literary. Some things can be interpreted literally or literarily. Like, for example, the Genesis creation accounts. Now, some people, uh, if you go to, like, Ken Ham's Ark in Kentucky they would say, six days, God made the earth. I would say that Genesis is not um, a recipe, it's poetry. Like, if God was going to tell us how he made everything, we wouldn't understand it anyway. Now, it's interesting, though, that the six days do follow what we see in science of how creation came to be. But there, it's not necessarily literal, but it is literary. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus teaches that about sin, how to avoid sin. And he says, if something causes you to sin, if your hand causes you to sin, chop it off. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. Is he telling us to harm our bodies? No. It's a literary device, even humorous maybe to the audience back then, as a way to draw attention to the severity of sin. So that's literary. And a lot of people ask, especially nowadays, how do we know which parts of the Bible are binding or non-binding? Again, by the book. (laughs) I mean if you read like Leviticus chapter 19 that gets a lot of attention it says things like don't eat lobster don't wear uh, clothing of multiple types of cloth right well I had shrimp last week at the beach we're all wearing clothing of multiple types right now so we're all falling short but also Leviticus 19 says don't marry your sister or don't don't date your horse okay (laughs) hopefully we uphold those things some things in the Old Testament are moral. Some are ceremonial. Clearly the lobster, the things that are remaining ritually pure, all those types of things were important for the temple worship, which no longer exists. Other things are moral, and they're still upheld. For example, you could look at like the Ten Commandments. We want to still uphold those things. That's a moral law. Okay, and I'll close with this, though. Because I, you could teach on this all day about Scripture authority. It's God-inspired. Um, it's, it's a revelation from God. You know It's all true. But you know what? Without love, it's all meaningless. It's all pride. Really. Because you know who else can quote, quote scripture? The devil. The demons believe, and they shudder. Right belief without love turns into pride. And the worst type of pride is religious pride. The most dangerous. Paul, the Apostle Paul felt the same thing in 1 Corinthians th- chapter 13, which I'm pretty sure now is official. You have to read this at every single wedding. I just think it's a rule. It's a rule now. If I speak in the tongues of mortals and of angels, but do not have love, I'm a noisy gong or a clinging cymbal. And if I have pr- prophetic powers, and I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but I do not have love, I am nothing if I would give away all my possessions, and if I hand over my body, so am I my boast. But do not have love, I gain nothing. See, at the heart of the understanding of Scripture is the love of God shut abroad in your heart. It's to see that the whole entirety of this book ultimately is the heart of a loving Creator who inspired this thing to begin with. It's the heart of love that was behind this book, the love of God. And Jesus was the most orthodox, right-believing, right-teaching man who ever lived. And yet he was the most loving and the most servant-hearted as well. You know, without Scripture, we wouldn't have words like this. God with us. Emmanuel. We would never have heard those beautiful words. God with us. And without Scripture, we wouldn't have heard these words either. On the night in which Jesus gave himself up for us, he took the bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body given for you. As often as you take this meal, do so in remembrance of me.